Support for WXAV 88.3 is being provided by Northwest Community Credit Union. Located on campus inside the Graham School of Management, the credit union provides its members with a variety of financial products and services to help them achieve their financial goals. Whether it's savings, checkings, or loans, Northwest services are available with convenient online and mobile banking. For more information, stop in. Visit their website at nwccu.com or call them at one 800 to belong Support for WXAV 88.3 FM is being provided by Bookies, an independent bookstore located at 10324 Southwestern Avenue in Chicago. Bookies has a large inventory of new and used books for both adults and children across many genres. Bookies also places orders daily for books that are not currently in stock. For more information and upcoming events, please visit their website at bookiesbookstores.com. You can also follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This podcast is being brought to you by WXAV 88.3 FM and WXAV.com. WXAV, bringing the best podcasts to you. Hi, I'm Peter Creighton, host of The Rockology. For the past few decades, we've been told that the future is digital, that computers and the internet, they're going to make our lives easier. But if the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us anything, it's that digital is really not the savior it's all cracked up to be. In fact, I think an argument can and should be made that we need more analog activities in our lives. David Sachs, a Canadian-based journalist, has a new book entitled The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. In my interview with Sachs, We discuss his new book, how analog and human interactions can help us solve some of our most crucial problems, and why we, at the societal level at least, keep turning to digital futurists to answer our questions. Here now, my interview with David Sachs. The the new book is fantastic. It's called The Future's Analog, How to Create a More Human World. And uh, you really go the entire gamut in this book, uh, and it's all based on the pandemic. I mean, which is pretty, pretty, you know, obvious and everything. How soon into the pandemic did you kind of decide, you know, what I need to tackle the world of analog again? It was interesting. Uh, you know, I had another book that came out right when things hit the fan like early April, 2020. So I was preparing to go on book tour, preparing to do interviews about this other book, which is about entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Um, And suddenly, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I'm home, the book tour is canceled. I I set up this, you know, blanket fort in the basement. But I'm getting more requests to talk about analog from media, and people are saying, you know, what does this mean for the future of analog? And not just the record stores and bookstores and film cameras that I chronicled in in the previous book, but, you know, everyone was all of a sudden working from home and all school was going remote. And, you know, you're hearing pronunciations on news and online that this was the new normal, that we would be shopping online, going to school online, socializing online, you know, doing our, our, our weekly Mahjong meetup with our friends. All of this is going digital. This is the future that we had sort of, predicted and there was no going back. And and people were saying, well, what do you think about this? What does this mean for analog? And it really forced me to confront the, not just reality of the current situation, but what it meant about 
the future. So it was very, very early on. Like I, I just said, like, there's something here because I'm getting asked about this so much. And it was media from all over the world. I remember doing an interview with a Spanish newspaper and a, a radio station in, in Germany. And, um, and, and there was, you know, everyone was just focusing on the newness of, of the sort of totality of digital now that had become our entire lives. And there was very little thought for the future of the sort of analog spaces and places and relationships and objects that we kind of jettisoned as we fled home and, and started sanitizing our hands. Um, and I really wondered what the future of that was. And so the book is kind of a, an exploration of that and what we learned in the subsequent, oh my gosh, two years plus, I, I can't even remember. Yeah, I yeah, two, two, two and a half years of sort of grappling with that and actually road testing the digital future that was kind of promised to us and seeing the value of analog laid out before us as we were deprived of it and as we had to kind of substitute it for, for its digital equivalent, which in many cases, you know, fell far, far short of our expectations. It, it was funny as I was reading your, your book and everything, like some of it gave me PTSD, especially about the school uh, and everything. Um, because you just, you really nailed it and you really explore something in the book. And I, I want to really talk to you about it for a little bit. You, you really go to, uh, Silicon Valley and all these great text people, the Steve jobs, the Mark Zuckerbergs, all these people that have promised, you know, digital and online is the future and Meta's the future and it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. And once we get into COVID, it was great for about 10 days, and then we all hated it. Yet, yeah. if, if you still watch the news, read newspapers, all that, we're still going to these people and, like, looking for them for these, like, futuristic answers. Like, where are we going as a society and everything? Why are we so obsessed with going to these people from Silicon Valley to get these big questions answered where... I, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I think in your research, you kind of come out and say you're wrong. The future isn't all yeah. on the computer. The future is it, it's analog. You know, I did a number of interviews early on when doing research in the book with a bunch of future people whose job it is to think about the future in all sorts of different ways, whether it's for companies or global organizations like the United Nations um, and, and, you know, I, I didn't end up using a lot of those in the book. They, they kind of inform my thinking in the background. But, you know, the interesting thing about a lot of those conversations was that these people whose job it was to think about, you know, big issues like climate change and global security and, 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 and the things that are going to challenge, you know, organizations and individuals and, and states and societies in the future, they said that, you know, there is this fascination and in a way kind of laziness around thinking about the future that's really pervasive in the United States specifically, more so than other parts of the world. And it's tremendously focused on sort of consumer technology. And this goes back to like, you know, GE and electric ovens and, you know, this future of flying cars in the 1950s. Um, it's, it is very much focused on the gadget. It's Star Trek. It's fused with popular culture. And we tend to take an invention and extrapolate our future based around that invention. And so the iPhone is this 
you know, the rubric that we use for everything. This is, this is getting a Steve Jobs got to 30. like, this is going to change everything. And it changed many things in many ways. And so now we're looking for the next thing. And so every new thing that comes out, it's wearables, it's AI, it's big data, it's voice recognition. How is this going to change, you know, picket, banking, uh, you know, fishing, uh, <laughs> you know, your kid's school, whatever. Um, there's, there's this laziness that it's this thing, it's, it's a shiny gadget, it's fun, we can sell it, it's sexy, there's an element of capitalism, there's marketing involved, and it's a lot harder to think about non-technological approaches to the future. Like, you know, you think about the, the debate about working from home and the office and the future of work, and so much is like, is it the office or is it working from home? How many days in the office? What does the office look like? It's like, that's not the question. There are bigger, more difficult questions about how we value and measure work and what we mean by productivity and how we reward that that are much trickier to unpack. So maybe it's easier to just think about Zoom or it's sexier to think about how wearables will change education versus the trickier questions about, you know, how you tax school districts and fund public schools in the United States going forward to that education is equal and actually provides a greater benefit. But this idea that like, oh, well, someone else, you know, what is Elon Musk saying? He's like, well, we're all going to live on the moon and have hyperloops or whatever. Um, oh, okay, that's the future. We're going to invest in that. You know, it, 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 um, it provides an easy answer and a sexy answer and something that's sort of sellable. But it's, it's never what the future is about. Like, even now we're, we're thinking about the future and technology has changed everything, but like, we're still dealing with, you know, climate change, and we're still dealing with the same biblical things: rain, droughts, floods, famine, war, you know, hatred. Like the future is is the real issues we deal with are sort of these timeless human analog things, and technology plays a role, but it's not the everything and the anything. And I think we realize the limits of that. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. You actually kind of, I think, answered what my next question was because. As I was reading this book, I mean, this is almost like a, a, a philosophy book. And I love that. And I mean that in like the best possible way because, you know, the the concepts you're digging into are really deep and they're really important. And again, I think you, you kind of really hit a really good nerve. And you mentioned it earlier with how, you know, we in the United States, we really look for digital to like solve everything. But you come out and say, no, digital is a tool. It can help us, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Why do you think Western culture, Western civilization, why do you think we're almost afraid of confronting the hard questions of climate change, of racism, of things like that? Why do, you, why do we always see the tool as the salvation for us and not the tool that can help us do it ourselves? Interesting. Very interesting question. <laughs> um, one which you could spend an entire life trying yeah. to answer. I think, you know, there's a lot of elements unpacked there. One is that we, you know, we are, and I'm in Canada, so it's not that different in the States uh, in terms of its culture, but we are a culture of builders and 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 we're a culture that is has been very future looking we're not as tied to the past as other cultures are um because of the relative newness of our nation state because of the relative fluidity of our cultures that are constantly changing more so than a culture that might be more established over a longer period of time you know the nations of immigrants 
Um, so the culture is very fluid and dynamic, and that makes, makes it fun. Newness, novelty is the core of the American experience, right? That reinvention and, and you know, the reinvention through technology when you think about Edison and Ford and, you know, the creation of, of computers and the internet and, and the space race and leading up to the, the sort of current area of bearing the digital fervent. And it's, it is very much, it is very much there. You know, progress built through the railroad, progress built through highways, progress built through television and computers and technology and all these sorts of things is the way, in many ways, we measured the coming of the future, the growth of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's deeply ingrained in the way we look at everything, you know, education, culture, business and economics, for example. And I think it takes uh, a greater amount of time and sort of a deeper reckoning with technology and its limitation to sort of start to think more broadly about the human experience as something that's truly analog and technology plays a role in that and it's not everything. And I think we're not there and we're not even getting there, but we're beginning, you know, Churchillian, we're, we're the, at the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, which is that the experience of the pandemic and the sort of overeating, <laughs> overconsumption of digital technology to the point where everyone was just like, oh, God, enough of this. Um, along with, you know, the various crises of confidence in, you know, social media and Silicon Valley um, over the past number of years in terms of data breaches, privacy breaches, you know, the erosion of democracy that is playing, the, the tearing of the social fabric that social media has done. I mean, the, the shine is coming off of it. And yeah, you know, everyone's going to rush out today to buy the new iPhone, um, which is the day that it's come out. But it's not, it's just like an upgrade. It's not seen as like the magical solution anymore, I think. Um, and so you know, we're at an inflection point in, in our history as human beings where we actually have to think about the future in a much more broad way. And I think we can all acknowledge that technology is not going to save it. Like no great electric car is going to solve the climate crisis on its own. No great amount of AI technology is going to you know, create global security. We, we we have to approach those deeper fundamental human problems and challenges like education um, or even community and, and repairing that social fabric in a way that's that's in many ways timeless. And so what is the future that we want? That's mm-hmm. that's kind of the big question that I'm hinting at in the book, so I'm not prescribing anything. The pandemic forced us to look into it as as we had to sort of evaluate our circumstances in the present, right? Yeah. Okay, now I'm doing school with my children online. Is this a future I want? The vast majority of people in the world said, whoa, no, never, <laughs> never, never, never. My daughter had her second day of school, fourth grade yesterday. She came home, she's like, I don't like school. I don't want to do it. You know, so-and-so doesn't do school. And I said, well, so-and-so still does school online because they're – they have a health issue. Do you want to do school online? Oh, God, no, no, no. Like, send me back to school tomorrow. Like, it's a threat now. Virtual virtual school is a threat I use for my children. <laughs> you want to go to virtual school? Do your homework. That's right. Do your homework. You're going, or you're going to Zoom. I, there, there was a little part of me that when I requested the interview, I was going to demand that it be on Zoom, but I'm like, no, I can't do that to them. I can't. I can't do that to myself either because Zoom is just, it's... It's exhausting. And, and it was, again, it's like, it, there's nothing wrong with it per se. No. It's 
it, it provides a great advantage over, you know, when you're talking to people over distance, you can see that Zoom is interchangeable with Skype, Microsoft Teams, WebEx, whatever other thing you're using. Yeah. But, you know, I remember doing the interviews for this book, and they were all done remotely, all done in my house when my kids were home for homeschool. Like, our next door neighbor, luckily, had a basement apartment that was empty at the time. So we had this desk set up there. My wife and I would go off and trade calls and trade school mining duties. And I just remember, like, after one or two Zoom calls, the the dread of it, mm-hmm. the sheer energy suck that was there was just so visceral. And I think it just became very apparent that this is not this is not a future that I want any more of. Like I want I want less of it. This is not something that I aspire to grow into. Um, it's not getting better. There's no technology that's gonna solve this. This is a fundamental disconnect from the way I want to live as a human now and going forward. And I think that was true for so many of these aspects of our lives that we had predicted would become, you know, entirely digital going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it was shopping, whether it was socializing, whether it was the way we sort of built cities around technology, we actually saw the the moment of greatest value, of greatest joy, of greatest connection, of greatest productivity were the ones where we were in person. Mm-hmm. And we were interacting in an analog way with spaces and individuals and relationships, you know, face to face in a physical space, whether that was, you know, on your porch or your backyard or a park or, you know, the first meeting or, or, or first, you know, concert you went to. Um, the the richness of that and the and the, the totality of that recentered it as the core of the human experience. We're like, oh yeah, why were we trying to move away from this thing? Why is it something that we were actually trying to disrupt? This is this is perfect. Like you can't do better than a concert. Uh, you could film it and someone at home could watch it, but like the live thing is still the best thing. Yeah, yeah. You got to feel that energy and everything. And I, I have to tell you, you know, one of the chapters that really just stayed with me is the the chapter on urban life, city living. And I, I you know, David, I got to say, you made me fall in love again with urban life and the urban lifestyle Um, because you just really talk about the joys of the neighborhood and, and walkability and things like that. What do you think cities can do? What do you think there are some like creative options like Chicago or Toronto, New York, San Francisco? What do you think they can do to help bring people back into the city and almost make them re fall in love with that urban lifestyle? I mean, I think it's, it is, it is leaning into and accentuating the core things that make a city what a city should be, Mm -hmm. right? Which is not getting in and out of it quickly to get to some tower and is not, you know, embedding it with the most seamless technology. It's like the core of a city is a bunch of people living together in one place and the magic happens from that, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you bring more people together? and bring them together face-to-face in more places where they're going to see each other and bump into each other. And it's, it's back to like Jane Jacobs, you know, 101, or even what they knew when they were building Rome, and it's still true in Rome and Paris and, you know, all these ancient cities today, which are still thriving metropolises. It's like public space, access to public space you know, the mixture of commerce and culture and transport and education and and community all out in the open. And that just leads to all the things that make that city great, which is 
ideas, business, entrepreneurship, conversation, culture, right? It's, it's that rhythm and feeling in the city. And so many cities have been trying to optimize it or do away with it in ways that has been countervailing. In the 1950s and 60s, it was, you know, we need to build a highway through the city and, and that's going to get us out to Highland Park and, and Skokie and all these places. That's the future of the city, the suburb, and the city will become, you know, just a place you go into, like your Ferris Bueller driving in from you know, the suburbs <laughs> in, in Camden, and Ferrari. Um, and uh, I'm going to go on the Ferris Bueller, right? But, you know, now we realize that's wrong. And so what cities are doing is disassembling a lot of those highways because they were detrimental to the life of the city. They're rebuilding these very 19th century notions of, of what a city should be, which is public square. Like I was, my family's from Montreal. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Toronto, but I, I, you know, I went to university in Montreal. I grew up going to Montreal. You know, Montreal is like New Orleans, one of these unique places that more European in many ways as a city, especially its core than it is in North America. And, you know, we were there this summer for a couple of days and it's like, there's so many plazas. There's so many streets that are just closed to traffic the entire summer for a festival or just because they want to. There's so many bike lanes and all these things make the city more of a city, more enjoyable because it brings people out into the open. A city is not a place where you go from the inside of one building to the inside of another building as quickly and efficiently as possible. The city is a place that brings you out in the open with the smells and the characters and the, and the the feeling of it. And if you don't like that, then go move out of the city. Like if that's why people should live in the suburbs. I have friends who live in Highland Park. Mm-hmm. You know, nice big house, you know, they drive their kids to school, they drive everywhere. There's very little walking that happens. Right? That's fine. But I also have friends who live in in the core of Chicago and that's what they love about it. They live in a smaller place, it's more expensive, <laughs> it's hard to get around, you know, there's there's some danger, there's some there's characters, there's noise. And that's the thing. I mean, I'm sitting in my son's bedroom here because it's the only room in the house that you can't hear the like sawing of stone from that my next door neighbor who's, you know, seven feet away is doing. But that's a city. And the fact that I can walk out the door and probably bump into someone I know in 10 minutes is the thing that gives me the greatest value about living here. Why I wouldn't trade this house for one that's double the size, you know, in a more suburban area. Um, So again, it's, it is, you know, analog isn't about a rejection of technology. You can use technology in a city to make the buses run more efficiently or, you know, to improve the quality of city services or all these things, but it's not the core, right? You know, all these years of like, we need Wi-Fi in the park. It's like, you don't need Wi-Fi in the park. You need better, nicer parks and you need more of them. Mm-hmm. That's what matters. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. Um, so I got one more question for you. And again, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to to talk with me. Where do you see young people falling into this equation? Where do you see young people uh, getting to learn analog and and more so like embracing it? I think we saw very early on that you know there was this this real disconnect of expectation of reality of you know what younger people. Um, would want. And, and there was an assumption like, well, young people like to play on iPads, or young people get on phones, so they're going to be really happy sitting at home and doing this. And for the most part, you know, kids, were, children rejected online school, you know, vastly. Yeah, they may have played some Fortnite, Fortnite and Minecraft, but it wasn't like they were happy doing it. 
what you saw with kids, you know, running to playgrounds. Um, here in Toronto, in, in Ontario, they closed playgrounds for the first few months of the pandemic. They had yellow police tape around them. It was the stupidest thing in all the stupid things that happened mm-hmm. in, you know, a couple of years of really stupid stuff. And I remember my son, like the first day, tearing toward the playground when it was open, screaming at the top of his lungs how happy he was. Um, I remember seeing packs of teenagers roaming around the city on bikes, you know, just hanging out because they needed that social interaction. So I don't think that analog is something that has to be taught to the younger generation. They know it because analog fundamentally is like the default human experience. The default human experience is not digital. And no matter how much you might see a teenager, you know, sitting on their phone or their iPad all day, their, their, their core experience as a human is still the one that happens in the real world, that physical experience. Um, that's what matters. That's where the action is. Nothing's going to replace that. So I don't think it's, it's something that has to be taught. I think we have to make sure that we protect and enhance the opportunities for that in school. And that's things like <coughs> drama and shop class and, and, and you know, physical activities and sports. Um, it's creating spaces and safe spaces in all sorts of different communities where especially kids who aren't wealthy who might come from communities of color or disadvantaged communities have the ability to have playgrounds and spaces and community centers and basketball courts and, and theater programs and pools where they can have those interactions and, and, and learn, where they can get outside into nature, get you know, outside beyond concrete um, and experience those things. But all it requires is that exposure because, again, it's, it's, it's embedded in who we are. We are analog creatures. We don't need to be taught that. That's awesome. I, David, thank you so much for, for taking time with me today. Uh, this is terrific. The new book is called The Future's Analog, How to Create a More Human World, and you should definitely go and uh, pick it up. But don't buy it on Kindle. Buy it as a physical book at a real like bookstore. Amen. And that was my interview with David Sachs. The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World, is available on November 15th, 2022. You can follow David Sachs on Twitter at SachsDavid. I'm Peter Creighton, and thanks for listening. Thank you very much for listening to this WXAV 88.3 FM podcast. Be sure to visit our website, wxav.com, for more information on your escape from ordinary radio.